I'm right and you're wrong. Once you start labeling people, categorizing of humans and ideas, you have desensitized yourself to the humanity of that other human being, to who they really are. And in the marketplace of ideas, these things are complicated, man. We all need to engage with a variety of viewpoints. A genuine multicultural connection with another. I mean, sometimes you don't need to agree or disagree. You just need to sit with it and digest. Everything is good. All right. G'day and welcome back to another episode of Ideas Digest, the live podcast practice where we explore the ideas that divide us in order to find the humanity that I believe connects us. My name's Conrad and if you're new to the show, welcome. You're very welcome. Old friends of the show, obviously, you're welcome. I have heard, people have been talking, I've heard, that this podcast has been described as an empathy gym. Oh, interesting. Really, Conrad, who said that? I don't know. Don't, don't you worry about that. But I thought, geez, that's, that's an interesting way to put it, an empathy gym. And like most gyms, I think it's actually a lot of hard work. It's not easy, uh, but come summer, you'll be jacked. Or maybe not jacked, you'll be open-minded and more empathetic. So, sounds like an oversell. I know. Sounds like I'm on Daniel's Direct Late Night TV selling some kind of empathy gym. Sounds like an oversell. But honestly, listening to people you disagree with or ideas you might not have considered changes how you see people. And if you're up for that, let's get into it. Welcome New friend of the show, Melinda Tankard Reese. Thanks for joining me. It's a pleasure, Conrad. Thanks for having me. It's it's great to meet you. Now we've we've tried to line this up quite a few times, and things things didn't quite work, but we've we've managed to pull it off today. Well, you had and some crazy excuse about a tree falling on your roof or something like that. I mean, that's a new one that I've heard. But uh, <laughs> well done. Yes, for- don't follow that up. <laughs> Storms in Melbourne. I'm not seeing any, Conrad. No, no, I swear. Uh, so we've lined this up. You're in lockdown. I'm in lockdown. But as I've just learned, you're in Canberra. Now, Canberra, I've been to a few times. And there's a, there's a burger establishment that I don't mind there. Broad Burger. Free plug for Broad Burger. If you've ever frequented Broad Burger, let's say we fortuitously run into each other outside of a Broad Burger. And... First time meeting each other. And the general questions are, when you meet someone, well, who are you and what do you do? Melinda, who are you and what do you do? Well, it depends if I feel like telling you or not. So sometimes I... Uh, I look like a friendly, I look like a friendly, approachable guy. You're like, well, yeah, I'm really vibing this guy. Well, often they look, they look all right, don't they? But uh, you don't always know. So it depends. It really depends who the person is and it really depends on the kind of mood I'm in. Uh, sometimes... I don't feel like talking about porn and sexual violence yeah. and horror and torture and rape and sadism and the status of women around the world. Uh, sometimes I just think I don't want to go there with that person. So sometimes I might say I work in women's health. Ah, okay. The general women's health and then if they press you and you're in a good mood. It really, it really does depend because I'm not always up for an argument and I have got into arguments with, for example, um, racist, sexist taxi drivers and I kind, of, I kind of learned a lesson there once where I was about to speak at a major event and this guy really destabilised me. Uh, in his particularly his uh, anti-Semitic attitudes, 
and anti-women attitudes. So I look, I just have to, I weigh it up, you know, how am I feeling, what kind of mood am I in, what's this person, how might this person respond, oops, there goes my, there goes Instagram live. Uh, see, I'm getting worked up and knocking things over already and we've only been going 30 seconds. Because you're, you're describing something very, um, what is it? It's very controversial it sounds like and when you're entering a space with a conversation with somebody say we've just met you don't know it you're, what you're saying your work is a highly emotively charged topic that when it's brought up in the topic of you generally introducing yourself it can start something that you might not be ready for that's correct or maybe i need to preserve my energy maybe i'm got a big event coming up um Maybe I'm in the middle of a global campaign that's just taking off and needs my focus. Maybe I'm about to do a media interview that I know I've got to devote all of my emotional resources to. Um, so, yeah, it's a matter of, uh, of weighing it up. Sometimes I, I'm happy to have the conversation. But, you know, it's, there's, a, there's, always, there's always a risk in going there, and particularly if I'm talking to men, because we know that most of them will be consuming the content that I'm, I'm fighting, you know. Most of them will have uh, some involvement there. It's, that's just the fact. And I just don't need to sometimes hear uh, their justifications, their um, excuses for why they choose to masturbate to images of, of women and and often uh, girls, so it's, it's always it's always a risk to go there because it chips away at your soul when you hear some men describing why they do it, why they enjoy it, why they know the women really enjoy it, how they seem to look like they're enjoying it, they're moaning with pleasure, and you know this is really what just what men do and what men need and sometimes I'm just not up to hearing those those justifications and the lack of empathy for 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 the women uh, whose degradation they are actually jerking off to I just sometimes just not in the mood for that you know yeah so so describe for me the Nate like the specific nature of your work so you're talking about working against uh, a lot of the porn industries and having com- having having these conversations what what is the nature of your work around this topic what does that look like day to day i'm a journalist by background i've written i think it's six books now i started to focus on this subject when my third book came out called getting real challenging the sexualization of girls and that book brought together global authorities in the field of objectification of women, sexualization of girls, looking at the harms to, to girls specifically from a pornified world, how girls were being reduced to the sum of their sexual parts, how it was all about their bodies, not their gifts, talents, abilities, uh, their spirituality or their desire to make a difference in the world, their art, their poetry. It was all about their sexual appeal their ability to provide sexual gratification and the work took off from that book one of the contributors said your book is a collective shout against the pornification of culture and that had such an effect on me those words collective shout that I just thought 
you know, I need an excuse to uh, to start that to start a movement using those words. So I did. That was a decade ago now. And then my book on pornography came out, Big Porn Inc., exposing the harms of the global porn industry. And that book um, led to even more work in this in this space. So the work involves really calling out an industry that is built on the exploitation of women and girls trading in their bodies, selling their bodies, selling degradation, really, a sexual exploitation being harnessed for profit on a mega scale by big mega industries, the porn industry, multiple platforms that that industry operates from. So it's really about, I suppose, saying, look, this is what's going on. Here are the impacts, particularly on young people who whose sexual templates are still forming. Here's how it's affecting our boys. Here, here's how it's affecting girls. Here's how it is eroding empathy and true intimacy and mutuality and giving boys distorted and harmful ideas about women and girls and teaching girls that they are merely porn fantasy props for men and boys that is their their sole value and we're seeing the impacts of of this giant experiment we're seeing the impacts of the world's biggest department of education on our young people so that's what it involves it involves daily campaigns with uh, collective shout and building this movement against the sexploitation industry mm-hmm. L- in this, like hearing you describe your work to, let's say, somebody you've just met, what if it turns out that I'm the worst kind of guy you've just met? You, you've just introduced yourself. You're like, oh, Conrad, he seems like a nice, friendly guy. But then I turn out to be one of these people that has judgments about you. You know, I've, I've heard what you've just said, Melinda, and I'm a pretty bad guy because I've judged you. But I'm slightly better than most bad guys. Is this becoming guys. true confessions, Conrad, or is this like a hypothetical? That's, it's a bit of both, right? Okay. I, I, operate, I operate as a proxy for people who might be listening, and they might have formed judgments. But right. in this, we want to put these judgments that maybe you get, and we'll discuss whether I'm hitting some or not. Um, after, but I'd like to confess some of these judgments that maybe myself, maybe some listeners of the show. You're confessing put- on behalf of a friend, right? Yeah, yeah, let's say it's my friend. Yeah, yeah. My friend. A a friend, yes. Loves pornography and says it's great for him. Yeah. I've just met you. And so if I confess these assumptions to you, can you correct me where I'm wrong in a very strong, like, yes or no, if if that's possible? So. And then we'll come to the nuance after. Okay, so you just want to do yes or no answers. And then you can put a star next to it, and then at the end we'll come back to it, and you can and you can expand on it okay. as long as you like. Yeah, right. Yeah, how's that sound? Sure. I'll start with a slow pitch. I like to ease people into this one. Canberra, you're a lycra wearing, lycra wearing cyclist. Got I do well. Yes or no? Uh, yes. <laughs> yes. Uh, yes. Yes. I'll say yes if that saves your time. I'll say yes. Go on. The, the purpose is to really squeeze people in and show how these boxes don't quite fit. Um, so I'm glad you're, you're squirming in discomfort there because judgments do place us in those positions. All right, slightly harder one. You sound like you've got to be, you're in Canberra, you've got to be one of these greeny lefty activists. Uh, I, my first issue that I ever cared about was actually the environment. So I don't mean mind being, being described that, that way. 
uh, I think we should care for the environment. I am an activist, so that is true, yes. Am I left? Well, that's interesting because sometimes I get called a radical leftist and sometimes I get called a right-wing nut job and sometimes I get called everything else in between. I've been pretty much called everything. What do you think? Take me as you find me. Assess my work on its merits. Assess my arguments. Yes to the activist and no to the lefty. You'd be like, no. Nah, I don't mind. I don't mind. I've been called far worse. Left doesn't, doesn't bother me you. at all. Left is actually kind of soft uh, compared to other terms I get called. I don't mind. I'm happy to muddy the waters. I don't mind if people can't quite box me in because uh, I'd rather people think through my arguments and my reasoning and that I, you know, make my case uh Often I find the labelling is lazy because it's more convenient to label me than to actually assess my arguments on their merits. So, you know, I don't really care because I have literally, I can tell you, been called everything that it is possible to be called. So whatever. I, don't, How, I, can't, I can't give you a yes or no on that one either. I'll have a couple more and see see where you sit. And I know you've probably got them before hearing what you're talking about. They might even say you're a conservative so we've, we've accused the left, but then you've just alluded to, you must be a conservative, like anti-sex Christian. <laughs> yeah, hate sex. Should be banned. Okay. I'm starting it. You've given me an idea. I've started a petition. Yeah, ban it. Okay. So it's interesting about the conservative label because I've had conservatives call me a radical feminist. So, you know, whatever. You've just preempted my next one. Sorry. Are you, Melinda, an angry feminist? Uh, I think there's a, I think anger is justifiable. I really do. And again, this is a label designed to shut us up and we get told to shut up all the time, but how do you shut up about the global, um, epidemic of violence against women, uh, rape, torture, the trafficking, the denial of education, the denial of food, female genital mutilation, female infanticide, female um, feticide, bride burning, dowry deaths, what's going on in Afghanistan right now, 10-year-old girls being pulled out of their family homes and married, sold into sexual slavery to Taliban fighters. Uh, Yes, actually, I'll own it. I get angry most days. Uh, Part of the problem we have, one of the big problems we have is we haven't been angry enough. We have not been Mm. angry enough about yes. uh, the state of the world, the state of uh, women and girls on a global scale. Yes, there is a war against women. Yes, I'm angry about that. And yes, I do call myself a feminist. And yes, why not? We should be we should be angry. And <laughs> I, I'd, I'd rather be called uh, angry than uh, labelled uh, weak or a wimp or gutless, or that I hadn't tried to do something to change this, the status of uh, women and girls around around the world. So, yep, yes, I will say yes. Yep. Happy to say yes on that mm. one. And last one, it might follow on from the one before, you must then hate all men. <laughs> Every man. Oh, my God, you've broken into my phone. You got into my encrypted apps. Oh really? Am I hitting? Am I hitting them, Melinda? Is this what you get? So that's what you get? Yes. Oh, are you kidding? Only okay, give me an, every give day. me another one. You're trying to get women ahead at the expense of men. 
I mean, I don't even know how I made an exception to talk to you, mate. Seriously, you you look like a male. Uh, no, of course we don't. We have men working with us. We actually even let them in. Uh, we brought a young man onto our team, uh, Daniel, who's been coming into schools with me to work with young men. You know, we're all in this mess together. Uh, we want to help men be their better selves. We want men to see that they should be invested in this issue as well, that they're being harmed by toxic stereotypes about masculinity. They're being harmed by pornographic scripts which teach them that aggression and sex are essentially the same thing. Uh, we want men and boys to see that they are not going to have authentic, intimate, mutually enjoyable, pleasurable relationships with women if they are uh, consuming to pornography, if they are ejaculating to images of extreme torture and degradation and violation of women, that is going to harm their ability to see women as whole human beings worthy of respect, that women are human. You know, we're having this whole discussion about consent, very important, but consent cannot compete with the world's biggest department of education, which teaches boys that lack of consent, violation of consent, non-consent is actually erotic and sexy and you should get off on that. The best consent program in the world cannot compete with that indoctrination, that propaganda of pornography, which even small boys are now imbibing, six, seven, eight, nine-year-olds, and the stories that we are being told are getting worse. So to go back to your original question, uh, no, we certainly don't uh, hate men. We, we grieve at the behaviour of so many and it, it causes us huge distress every day. You know, the stories that I get from women and girls, I'm saying every day of my life, uh, cause me great despair and uh, heartache and soul damage, but we still hold out hope that men can be better. And uh, that's why we're actually doing more work with men and boys mm -hmm. than ever before. Can you describe to me, you've, you've, you've painted this picture of this, uh, as you put it, what, what was it, Ministry of Education, the porn industry. If you look at all these moving parts of all, this massive topic of porn, sex, commodification, sexualization, and men's behavior, domestic violence, all of these things that seem to be interconnected, you've mentioned parts of each one as you've described some of the answers to the questions, I've, uh, to the judgments I've thrown at you. What would you describe if you were to drill down into the heart of this problem? What, what is the heart of the problem that you campaign against in Collective Shout? Is it the porn industry? Is it commodification? Is it, what do you think is at the center that maybe you start from and work out from? It's all of the above. Attitudes shape behaviors. So we are confronting toxic attitudes which contribute to harmful behaviors, particularly towards women and girls. So we're challenging harmful stereotypes about women and about men. We're challenging harmful ideas about sexuality and relationships. We're tackling the whole body image issue, which makes girls feel they're only valuable if they get thousands of likes on Instagram for their sexualized pictures. 
we're challenging the global porn industry, obviously the sex industry, the, the trade in women's bodies, trafficking, modern-day uh, slavery. We're also fighting child sexual exploitation, including live distant child abuse of children being commissioned for uh, sexual acts to be abused live on camera, live streamed to men, including Australian men. So again, I can't give you a simple answer. All of these things intersect. So the sexualization of girls in media, advertising, pop culture, music, fashion, and then right through to the porn industry, global sex industry, violence against women. You know, all of these things occur on a continuum. So that's why we address address all of them. You know, you can't address one without without the other because they're they're all contributing to the stunting of an entire uh, generation and and real harms to to real women and girls whose lived experience is this every day like the girls I speak to think that it's normal to be sexually harassed it's normal to be touched and groped at school it's normal to have boys sending dick pics to them even underage girls uh, it's normal to have boys demanding sex acts. It's normal to have boys taking photos up their skirts, down their blouses. It's normal for boys to make sexual grunting and groaning and moaning noises in their classrooms as the girl enters the class. And when we talk about it, the lights go on. The girls realise, well, actually, that shouldn't be normal. We shouldn't have to put up with it. And uh, then they then they want to do something about it. So we're seeing that the girls are recognising that they shouldn't have to put up with these hostile attitudes and, and hostile uh, behaviours. What we help them to see is that a sexist culture grooms sexist boys and we're not going to change the behaviour of boys unless we uh, unpack, critique, dissect the... I guess as I, as I drill down, you're describing this probably heartbreaking any parent out there scary world where their daughters are in classrooms with a normalized culture of sexual abuse uh, uh, inappropriate sexual advancement harassment and I you're describing like this this pervasive culture that boys and men are caught up within and operate within I suppose my question is is, you said this behavior that you're describing is normal behavior. Why is this normal behavior? Where does it come from? Is it is it inherent? People might hear you and go, oh, is it men? Are men the problem? Are men inherently just uh, sexually violent creatures? Or, or is it something else? Where is it coming from? Uh, no, I do not believe for a moment that this is inherent. I believe it is taught. And every adult in the room right now needs to own this because we have allowed it. We have allowed a never-before-seen experiment on the healthy sexual development of our children and young people. It's our fault. It is not our kids' fault. No, I do not believe boys are innately like this, but I've seen it so often where the innate softness, the innate empathy, the innate kindness in our boys is driven out of them. It is knocked out of them at the earliest of ages and they are made more tolerant of violence. They are desensitised to sexual cruelty, cruelty towards girls. This is an absolute heartbreak that in this culture, empathy is, is devalued. So I, 
I really, I really need to emphasise here, neither myself nor my team at Collective Shout think that boys are naturally like this and many of us have sons, so we don't think that. Mm. But we see that we can't compete with a toxic culture that trains our boys in brutal, calloused versions of masculinity. So that's we're trying it. We are trying to change that. And as many men and boys who want to join us, you are very welcome. And we are so grateful to have more boys saying to us, "I don't want to be that kind of man. I want to integrate empathy into my sexuality. I want to be caring towards girls. I want to be friends with girls." They say to us, "What can we do to change this? How can we reject these toxic scripts about what it is to be?" A male, and I've been encouraged to work with more groups globally who are helping men and boys to dissect and critique how this sexed up, pornified culture is harmful to them, how it is corrosive to connection, it's um, emotionally disconnecting them from other people, it's teaching them that violence and aggressive. Uh, and even sexual assault is 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 sexy, and this is why we can't address the global pandemic of violence against women unless we address the very drivers of that violence, uh, which includes, of course, uh, the the porn industry as as a global driver of that of that violence. I mean, as you describe this, the porn industry. What what role does the porn industry play and industry in general, commercialization of any industry advertising in, in general, what role does that play in creating the culture that you describe? Well, it embeds new codes of conduct in men and boys. It links violence and brutality and aggression with their sexuality. I have now young women saying to me things like, he wanted to ejaculate on my face after our first date. Uh, he wanted to tie me up. He wanted to choke me. I have high school girls saying to me, he went for my throat without even asking. This is what it does. I, don't need, I, I can't give you any better examples than what young women, not just young women, so many women tell me about what men expect from them. They expect them to adopt pornified roles and behaviours. They expect them to act like... Uh, porn stars, they expect them to want to be choked, tied up, bound, hurt, bruised. I mean, we now have young girls posting their bruised bodies on TikTok saying, this is what, this is how I look after sex with my boyfriend. And thousands of children watch these videos of girls parading their bruises. Uh, Really, is this what we want for our young people? Is this what sexuality should look like? Uh, I have boys, I've heard a young man say, I don't respond to skin on skin contact. He said, real women and girls can't actually do for me what an inanimate square screen does for me. That the pleasure that he can get uh, from, you know, an unending harem, if you like, of uh, Mm. pornified women. So... That's that. That's a few examples of what porn is do, doing in conditioning boys to want something, hyperactivating the appetite system, so that real women and girls, you know, just cannot compete with that. And why should they have to? 
you know, what's appealing about that? Girls are increasingly resisting relationships with men because what's on offer is disgusting to them. They don't want that and who can blame them? Mm. And then they think you, there's something wrong with them or that they're hung up because they don't want to be, you know, choked and ejaculated on on their faces and they're made to feel, oh, well, maybe they're not free and empowered and liberated. You know, empowerment is mm. is used to compel girls to do things they actually really don't want to do and to violate their own sense of autonomy and bodily integrity and their sense of self-worth and dignity and respect because this global, commodified, commercialised, industrialised plastic in- industry uh, tells them, well, you should love this. Mm-hmm. You're describing a product, the product of porn being sold and the byproduct of that product being sold and consumed, having a rewiring on the very sexual nature or sexual expression or the culture of intimacy that that society currently has. So it's almost as if, um, <laughs> if, if people look at McDonald's and go, there's an obesity pandemic from this food that's been hardwired to bypass certain parts of our brain. So we eat something with lots of calories and no nutrition. And in the end, it resol- here's the byproduct is really is, is skyrocketing heart disease. Sounds like you're describing a similar picture for this product called porn, but also pot- potentially co-opted by every product because it can sell. And then the byproduct is shifting the culture of sex to the point where the outcomes are psychologically and physically damaging to young people, both women and men. Does that sound about right of what the picture you've painted? I can give you a yes answer to that, to that one, Conrad, yes. Uh, to give you an example, I had this young woman say to me that she, on a dating app, she listed as a fetish wanting to make love slowly and stare into someone's eyes. Make love slowly and look into someone's eyes. She had to put it as a fetish because she said, if I don't list this as a fetish, I won't get any interest. (laughs) So she had to list it as something kind of way out there, right? Crazy, crazy idea. I want to make love slowly and stare into someone's eyes. You know, I think that's a really great example because we have normalised these callous and brutalized and uh, very unsensual scripts about sexuality sex making making love I mean you really hear that expression to you it's really about getting off and what's going to get you off fast Uh, and and more and more girls are just saying this there's nothing attractive in this um, at all for them and uh, you know there's nothing loving caring empathetic about the about the whole encounter so yes what you say is a correct summation yeah you're you're describing porn as product and then sex as product and something to be consumed and it 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 strips out the relationality of that because that that girl in that weird kinky fetish she has to be intimate with somebody slowly and intimately it's all of that's been stripped and so it almost sounds like you're describing this commodification of a very important part 
of human and social connection. Absolutely. You know, Robert Jensen, whose work I admire very much, uh, he wrote a book uh, called The End of Patriarchy and he also wrote a book called Getting Off uh, about the porn industry and men. And he said porn is what the end of the world looks like. And, you know, it may sound a bit over the top, but gosh, um, you know, there are days it does feel like you're at, at, at ground zero and, you know, every day I think I can't hear something worse than I heard last week, and, and I do. Because of these new codes that we've Im- embedded, uh, this has become their, their behavioural t- template now, a behavioural template sold by a mega industry whose business model is to build new consumers. Their business model is they have to get this next generation consuming pornography. That's their business model. It's deliberate. It's predatory. It's a predatory industry that grooms boys to behave in these ways. And that's why we need boys to see that, to see how they're just pawns in a global uh, industry and they will they will suffer as, as well. You know, we're seeing the sexual stunting of an entire generation because of this commodification of sexuality, this industrialised version of sexuality for, for profit. Mm. Mm. It, and, and that sounds like, the, you're, now it sounds like you're critiquing the very backbone of our Western capitalist system and this is just kind of one product. I, I wonder then, maybe the obvious question, why do people consume porn given perhaps like the packet of charred lungs on an Australian cigarette packet goes, yeah, I know it causes lung cancer. Yeah, I know Maccas is unhealthy, but I'm going to do it anyway. Is this, is this an active choice that you're describing or is it more like an industry that is as predatory in nature as perhaps the gambling industry that preys on people who already have gambling addictions or the fast food industry that genetically that what that I wouldn't say genetically what it yeah genetically modifies food so that so that it actually becomes very difficult for us to use our cognitive reasoning faculties and go oh no I know Mac is unhealthy but then an hour later I'm there consuming this food that I know is bad for me so I suppose why why do people consume porn hearing what you've said it makes sense why does it continue well, because it hyperactivates the appetite system, because it actually rewires the neural pathways. So now, don't get me wrong, I'm not taking away from the moral agency of men who consume porn. I'm not. And whenever I speak to men, I say, you know, you you are consumers of a global industry which is trading on the bodies of women and girls. You've become a patron of an industry which actually sells women to make this content that you are consuming, you know, there's no equivalent, you know, dog-friendly version of this. You know, you cannot tell me you do not know the background of that woman whose degradation that you are masturbating to right now. So please, I just want to make clear, I'm not taking away from moral agency. However, when we are talking about boys who are adolescents, their sexuality is developing and they are consuming porn, often all night, you know, I talk to boys about this and they're on looking at it for hours and hours and hours, even really young boys, uh, you are rewiring their neural pathways. The pleasure is so great, you know, it's been compared to the power of, of, of drugs. The pleasure is so great that it is very difficult to compete with that. 
and they're not in an age where they can rationally critique the arguments and you know the uh how how do we compete with that if a boy's entire pleasure centers if his brain is being rewired uh and deriving huge pleasure from this and also trying to deal with loneliness trying to deal with being cut off from other sources of enjoyment or life-giving activities as we are seeing with you know multiple lockdowns um, if he might be socially uh, awkward or doesn't know how to relate uh, to girls the porn industry comes in and offers this you know answer and this solution which will wreck him uh, if I could recommend this remarkable piece written by a colleague James Evans from the UK he wrote this extraordinary piece which we published at Collective Shout on why we need to de-radicalise boys from porn. And he was first exposed around nine or ten years of age and didn't get free of it until the age of 34. And that was with a lot of work. And he said what persuaded him, the biggest motivating factor from him was uh, the trauma of his partner, the trauma of his wife, but also he realised that he'd become a patron of the global trafficking industry, that with every download, every click, every view, he was driving an uh, unethical industry and that really preyed on his conscience and helped him to stop consuming pornography. So it's, it's all you've described. It's the, the predatory nature of the industry, targeting young men, rewiring their brains, and really setting them up for failure. I mean, if you look at the wasted lives, the hours spent consuming porn that could be put into other things. Also something that's been plaguing me lately uh, is that these boys who are consuming porn at such high levels and, as we know, the trajectory is towards more and more violent content because they need more extreme content to get the same effect because they become inured to the stuff they started out with. These are the boys who will become the men who become our lawmakers, our judges, you know, our, our police force, our heads of industry, our sports coaches, and God help us, our politicians, right? So, you know, basically, you know, we're screwed, pardon the pun, if we don't actually do something about this. What, why, why, why not take away? Because like you said before, you're not taking away from someone's moral agency. But then the picture you paint straight afterwards is this from a young age, this brain hardwiring being programmed to like these things, being drawn to more extreme behavior, growing up with this normalization of this type of behavior to the point where I guess my question is, it sounds to me like a, like years of being exposed to this in various different settings, years of fighting an industry with now a phone that has dopamine loops that can push to you content that you might wish to stay away from for the profit motive that the industry has. It sounds to me like all those factors together, do they not almost completely erode the moral agency to the point where someone might, if they were honest, say, Melinda, I agree with you. I can't. It's, it, it, keeps, it keeps getting me. Is that, or is that a cop-out? Well, I'll say two things. One is that I have compassion for the for the boys who are whose adolescence, 
who are still adolescents and who are, uh, who are caught in this. I confess I have less compassion for grown adult men who, when shown the evidence, still choose to get off on women being bagged, bound, gagged, raped, who still choose to consume a genre, God help us, called death porn, who still choose to uh, get off on racialized violence against women, which is a, a popular genre of porn. For example, I don't know how graphic you want me to get. It's almost too much to even talk about. But some of the content involving women of color, the content involving, for example, Jewish women and black women, black women in uh, slavery narratives, uh, Jewish women in concentration camps, all of that is, is porn, right? I confess, I confess I struggle to have any compassion there. If you're, if a man said um, I get off on, which is also a genre, the torture of animals, you know, like I'm sorry, dude, but uh, kind of my, you're testing out my empathy levels here, right? If, if you're confronted with all the evidence, which is solid now, on the links between porn and violence against women, porn and the development of, of misogyny, and you still choose to ejaculate to that. Um, and if you're doing nothing to change it, like I meet so many women whose partners refuse to change. You can you can leave now, like see you later. You know, you're consuming porn in the family home, your children are in the home, you're treating your wife like dirt. Uh, why is she obliged? to stick around and be told, as she often is by sex therapists, uh, that this is just what men's do, men do. You need to loosen up. You need to get that moralising monkey off your back. You need to get drunk and just relax and chill out and buy some sexy lingerie and get some whips and handcuffs and read Fifty Shades of Grey and you just need to loosen up a bit and enjoy it because that's what women get told. Sorry, I just, my empathy reserves are very limited at that point, I confess. But the men who recognise it, who want to change, who say, help me, what can I do, who make themselves accountable, who do everything possible, including men I've talked to who have thrown the computer out the window, destroyed their mobile phones, right? Then I know they're serious. We can work with those men. Those men have shown they still have a conscience, they still have an ethical centre, and we can work with those men. But the men who continue to justify it, who say, this is just boys being boys, no, I really, I do really struggle there, to be honest with you, Conrad. Because mm -hmm. the very real impacts that you're talking about, which which ultimately at its at at one of its worst points is the violence against women, and you're drawing these very strong connective lines from young boys, an industry that makes money off this, to attitudes towards women, to then how we treat women, see women, perceive uh, and interact with women, to the point where. Australia has a, and probably America too and different countries, have a massive violence against women problem that I suppose that's why you kind of touch on all these different areas. They're all interlinked. And, and that's kind of why I'm following the maze a little bit back to, to go, well, well, where is it coming from? And it seems to be coming from a profit-driven industry that, it's a, that, that operates as the heart of our economic system, which is just, this is how you make profit. And it, the system itself, 
especially if we go to the consumer capital model, we go, well, people consume what they want. The companies are obliged to give them what they want to get money and, and that's okay. But then it also sounds like in some industries that governments step in and regulate like alcohol, like gambling, like smoking, there is almost this admission that people might not be able to control themselves. Like with, uh, with gambling, for instance, if you know companies have gotten in trouble for targeting problem gam- gamblers with advertising. And so there's almost this admission, this, the, the subtext of capitalism says, well, I can make my choices and whatever I choose is okay. But then there's an admission within industry that isn't actually said that says, well, actually, some people might not be able to choose. So keep that ad away from them, because if you keep those ads away from them, they're less likely to do it. But if we expose some people to those things, it, it's almost as if we admit that free will in the consumer capital construct doesn't always operate as we think it does. Yes. What you're talking about here is so important because we're looking at the colonization of the entire planet by the porn industry, but we're also trying to protect the social compact, social bonds, social connections. We also need to protect the most vulnerable, which are children. So why have we allowed the vested interests of this mega sexual exploitative industry to come before the well-being of the community as a whole? And that's why we have been calling for, at minimum, age verification, a proof-of-age system so that children at least can have one obstacle put in the way from them with one click of a key seeing rape, incest, torture, bestiality, sadism, porn. Like, can't we as a community find common ground here and say, yeah, nah, that's that's going too far. Our kids shouldn't have to see this stuff. And that's why we've been supporting an age verification system. We lobbied for it. There was a federal inquiry into it 18 or so months ago. That committee uh, determined that an age verification would at least put one obstacle in the way of children being exposed. And now we're part of a global campaign to get other state parties, global governments to agree to uniform laws to protect children from this content. So we've been part of that process. The eSafety Commission here has been charged with coming up with a roadmap, a plan to roll out in 12 to 18 months to protect children from this content. But, of course, the global porn industry, very well-funded, profit-driven, says, no, like they they don't care about our children. They don't care about the social compact. They don't care about the the fraying of the social bonds. They just care about money and that's it. And so we're trying to bring them to account at at last. And that's also happened with the global campaign against Pornhub, which uh, had over 2 million signatures on a change.org petition. And Pornhub, which is is owned by MindGeek, which lives in Canada, has its headquarters in Canada, was brought before the Canadian Parliament's Ethics Committee recently as a result of a global campaign. So finally, the truth is coming out and this industry is uh, now at last being made accountable. Mm. It, it sound, the, 
the process you describe of fighting an industry such as this and when I bring when I ask the next question saying how okay how do we begin to change something because the sub critique that I'm picking up through the example of porn is the is is this pattern that occurs throughout developed democracies and Australia at probably the center example of is that it sounds like you're saying that there are once an industry has a certain amount of money and a certain amount of influence, it's almost as if our democratic systems fail to work. They almost stop working against something like this. You're, so is that what you're trying to do? You're trying to use our government regulatory mechanisms to safeguard certain areas of the population like children and things like that. Is, is that roughly when, when I ask the question, what do we do about it? Is that what you're well, we need to act personally, we need to act politically. And so personally, uh, we advise, you know, in the, in the family home, have rules around computers, have rules around devices, have every filtering device known to humankind, model respectful behaviour in the home. But then it's too much, you know, it takes a village to raise a child. It's too hard for us. We cannot compete on our own with this industry we need governments, we need regulatory bodies to step up. That's what they're supposed to do, right? <laughs> Instead, state parties have offloaded their ethical duties to citizens like us to have to immerse ourselves in the most toxic, harmful material possible to immerse yourself in. You know, we stare into the abyss every single day. Why do we do that? Because governments state parties, state actors, regulatory bodies, so-called, have failed to do it. And, yes, that makes us angry because the harm is demonstrable. It's provable. So acting personally, acting collectively, yes, that's a collective action that we have taken to call governments out to stop privileging the commercial porn industry, which has committed social arson on a a level never before seen, which has destroyed the cultural scaffolding that once protected children and young people. Yes, we are calling them out now on an international uh, level saying, you know, we're we're done. Time's up. You've had too many privileges. You've had too much uh, protection already because you've got money. Money buys power, as we know. Uh, but the, but the, but it's done. We're done now, and uh, we're going to bring you to account. How do you weave the thread of a, in this current climate of Me Too, sexual empowerment, the movement of women reclaiming bodily autonomy, and sexual commodification? Because I think it might be, in a way, perfectly summed up in like pop music culture. Uh, you know, a few, like a year ago, I don't know, I'm pretty out of touch. Cardi B releases the song WAP, right? And it, and it's like the the general, the and, and and there's different pictures there. There's the general, like, yeah, she, like men have been rapping about their dicks for ages. Time for like, she can do what she wants kind of thing. But, and so they go, okay, good on her for sexual empowerment. But then at the core of it, I mean, it's an industry and it's, it's it's to make money and is it commodification of is it commodification of female sexuality to make more money but is it okay because she's okay with it how how do we weave that line of women empowerment but sex 
selling and exploitation and commodification of the female form. How, how do we navigate that? Yes. Well, at Collective Shout, um, we wrote a critique of WAP. And we have argued that this is, you know, empowerment, so-called empowerment is just used to justify anything. And just because men have wrapped about their dicks for, for eons, uh, women doing the same thing doesn't make it equal. It just means you become like the men. Like, really? Is that what we want? Is that the best we can do is to imitate the standards that men have set up? Seriously? we can't. When you go into TikTok and you see little girls uh, gyrating and thrusting their hips and imitating the sexual performances and singing that song, including in kindergartens, as teachers have told me, uh, we have got a problem because girls are being sold a false idea of empowerment and that empowerment usually looks like what men want it to look like. Isn't that funny? Isn't that ironic? <laughs> oh, men are all for empowerment when it's, you know, tits out for the boys. Uh, the uh, Free the Nipple campaign, gosh, the men rallied to that one. You could see them in the parks there supporting the, the movement to free the nipple, suddenly they're all feminists, you know. I'd never seen them at anything before, but, you know, they're all there at the slut walk because they said we can pick up some sluts, you know, go lads. So, I, I you know, we call out women as well uh, who have uh, clearly, uh, clearly adopted these uh, misogynist ideals, some of us would call it internalised misogyny, uh, to, for profit and have a look at the harm you're doing. Stop selling women down the river. Um, we did the same recently with another song that's come out, sadly, um, called uh, I Am The Strip Club uh, by I think it's Iggy Azalea. And, again, like can't you offer women and girls something else? Like aren't there, isn't there another way to be a woman than saying this is what it looks like? It looks like a it looked like a porn film, WAP looked like a porn film set set to a rap beat, right? That's the only difference. It had rap music that went with it. But it was a porn script. Uh, so we will we will call it out, you know, wherever we see it. But it is particularly soul-destroying when it's, when it's women selling out other women for profit and using names like feminist and empowerment and liberation uh, to justify it. You know, it's just totally unacceptable and, it, and it's harmful and it's certainly not feminist and it's certainly not empowering uh, when you see little girls acting like this and when when boys expect girls to act like this. It's the ev everything you're talking about always seems to have the subtext of the profit motive. It, it, it's almost... It's almost you can't pull what you're talking apart from follow the money. The, follow the money trail always. The consumer capital model that infiltrates everything. Yeah, follow the money. And so, because I suppose the song "I'm an esteemed, strong, independent woman who's a scientist" might not have sold <laughs> as well as she's you know looking through the microscope by, uh, as a microbiologist well, who knows? learning. Have we tried? We haven't even tried, right? Give that a go. With the the example you bring up like free the nipple and the the culture of the almost simultaneous pushback that might be purity culture one that says 
women are to cover up and, and they need to, their bodies are sexual things and, and they need to, you know, don't wear a short skirt because you're inviting something or that is sexualized. That is sexualized. So a girl, you know, just wearing short shorts to play sport in or something might be told, no, no, you, you need to wear longer shorts. That's sexualization. But a, but a boy wearing the shortest footy shorts he can never gets that conversation. How do we, how do we navigate that conversation of, of what you're saying is of it's like free the nipple on one hand, but then on the other hand, um, you, you should cover it up because it's, it's a sexual thing and, and men are allowed to, but women aren't. It sounds like a very tricky simultaneous narratives that run at the same time that are like very confusing. Yes. So we don't advocate for purity culture. Uh, we see these things as two sides of the, of the one coin. And we certainly don't micromanage girls' behaviour we we do the cultural deconstruction with them, then they can make the decisions they want about how they want to act and move and live in the world. And once they join those dots and see how the culture is harming them, they often decide to make their own choices in their own in their own interests. So if a girl is taught from the age of three years of old of age that to be acceptable as a girl, you need to show your body. You need to be on display. You need to be sexually appealing. You need to be sexually attractive. You need to go on Instagram and strut around semi-naked and get lots of men to uh, like you and then to subscribe to you on a private uh, platform, which is literally happening uh, right now. If that's how, what she's taught is her whole value, uh, why, why are we surprised uh, when we see these, uh, these mass-conditioned behaviors and so you know it's not saying your in fact it's saying it's quite the opposite it's saying your body is amazing you are amazing you are wonderful and gorgeous and so gifted and so talented and capable of so much we want to help you reach your full potential be all that you can be make a mark on the world make a difference in the world uh, that goes beyond well beyond you being presented every day as sexually available to any man and boy, you know, who wants you. And we are finding that many girls respond very positively to that. They're grateful to hear that they can be uh, more than some man's masturbatory material, some man that's watching, you know, just show reels of abuse and degradation and violence, then expecting her to act like that. With you know, we help. I like to. Well, I know the girls tell us that they've seen how harmful the culture is to them. They they've seen the false message of empowerment that they've been sold, and they want something better for themselves, for their friends, for their future daughters. I one question I have is it the gaze of men? like distorted Lynn's puts through in the chat. He's saying, who, who runs the music industry? Well, men do. Is it, is it the gaze of men that creates a culture like this? And, and purity culture has this same tone to it. it it's this same controlling and prescription of behavior to fit a predetermined, perhaps religious narrative of what women should be. Um, and then there's the commodification of what women should be. Or, or is it the gaze of consumer capitalism that, men 
have been programmed most dominantly by? Because uh, it strikes me that the thing you're critiquing is this massive machine that is just a profit-driven. And and yes, the CEO of this company is a man, but it, it always strikes me how powerless that CEO is to make any meaningful change within the company when he is beholden to a set of shareholders that require one thing from him, and that's profit. So if he's to go in and say, "Hey, hey, Izzy Azalea, uh, don't do the I'm a I, like I'm a strip club, don't like don't do that one. Do something else," then the shareholders will fire him because he's cost them profits potentially. So I, I, what do you make of that? Is, is it men that are the problem or is it something deeper that you're critiquing? Again, I think it can be both. I think it's these global industries mm-hmm. that distort what could be good in men uh, and uh-huh. sell them an idea that is going to harm them and harm every woman and girl around them. Um, so mm-hmm. it's that, that uh, exploitation of, of men as well, that men have to choose to to resist and to see how they're being manipulated and tricked as well. Now, these CEOs of these companies, you know, we work in this field as well. So we have called these mm-hmm. global corporates out for their lack of corporate social responsibility. Uh, for how example, well, it's interesting you should ask because we've uh, we're actually seeing some success. Mm-hmm. Now, I'll give you an example. I'll give you an example where we have seen success and where we're still fighting. We have been campaigning globally against uh, trigger warning, child sexual abuse dolls. So these are replica children, lifelike. You can custom make them. You can send a photo in and have this child custom made, uh, lifelike, realistic skin colour, hair colour, whatever you want, and also replica child body parts. This is a global trade, very popular. And global shopping platforms such as Wish, Amazon, Etsy, Alibaba sell these things. Now, Alibaba is like a trillion-dollar company, and they were selling, they had 23 companies selling replica child dolls and body parts. And so we went undercover as buyers and what we were sent is some of the worst things I've ever seen in my life, and I wish I hadn't really now in retrospect, but, you know, videos of babies, like they look like real babies, right, and what you can do to the babies. And so we targeted Alibaba and and we won. And Alibaba, to its credit, removed all of those sellers and is now going even further and it's going to block the sale of uh, women dolls, replica life-size women uh, for sexual use uh, to the Australian market and the US market. And so commendations to Alibaba. Etsy, however. Was that a moral appeal you're talking about well, that they listen to? Moral, ethics, Was it saying- corporate, good corporate citizenship, caring for mm-hmm. the world. Well, often all we have to do is quote their own mission and value statements back at them. And say, here's what you say. You say you care about the community. You say you care about ethics in business. You say you care about the environment. What about this toxic environment that you're creating that we all have to live and walk and breathe in? You know, we're all harmed by this. And the company agreed. And they've removed them all. We're about to issue a statement from them this week. Etsy, however, vintage, homemade, supporting small business, has ignored us despite a close to 50,000 signed petition against Etsy 
So, you know, Etsy, if you're listening, how about you respond because you're losing sellers and buyers. Uh, To give you another example closer to home, we've been targeting the uh, corporate heads of shopping centres, which house a sex shop called Honey Burdette, which recently featured images of women being choked in their shop windows, also featured images of upskirting women playing tennis as well in our shopping centres. These shopping centre CEOs love to identify themselves as male champions of change who pledge to drive out sexism in the community and in their workplaces. And here they are hosting these harmful, pornified representations of women. So we've called them out and we're also targeting their investors. For example, uh, the Christian Super and the all the ethical super companies, which again pride themselves on their their vision and their mission and their ethical investment, you know, they won't invest in gambling and tobacco and armaments and, um, you know, harmful environmental fuels, all of those things. Uh, hello, how about women and girls? Why what, you prioritise not investing in tobacco and gambling, uh, you're investing in shopping centres hosting these harmful representations of women, which the global research says contributes to a diminished view of women's competence, morality and humanity. So don't give me all your vision and your ethics and your good governance and all of that, blah, blah, blah. We're kind of sick of that. When you continue to profit by investing in these structures which are causing demonstrable harm. Mm. It sounds like the main mechanism by which change is enacted is holding hostage profit. It, it, it seems as if these companies, uh, often we might like to think of companies themselves as having morals and ethics, but it sounds like in the examples you give, it's, it's, a, it's, a, co- it's a company doing the maths on how much they will make. And, it, and if, if Etsy goes, ah, listen, this might go away, we won't lose many sales. Let's just ignore it. But then maybe Ali went, oh, well, this could grow into a big thing. We're a big company. They might cost us profit. It sounds like that's the only equation that seems to be run in these campaigns. It, it seems like the only power we have to make change in the world because it sounds very hopeless when I hear you talk about your political campaigning and how our mechanisms of democratic governance that says, hey, here's the harms to society, the damages. We can measure this. We've got studies. We can show that we're paying in tax dollars to deal with increased depression, while violence against women, all of these things. We go to our politicians and they go, oh, I guess there's, you know, that's a tricky thing. It's hard to do anything. And so we end up having to go to companies. And the only language we can speak is, I can cost you this much money. Will you change? And, and it sounds like you have to only be pulled into this deluded game of consumer capital, of profit, to go, how do we infuse our ethics back into the very fabric of our society, which has now become just consumer capital? That's just, that's the only metric that matters. Yeah, that's such a central question. You know, we, we will lo- use whatever lever we have at our disposal. And if that's costing these companies money, we will use that. However, wouldn't it be refreshing? If more of these global corporates and businesses said, actually, we're going to act ethically, even if it costs us money, because we want history Mm. to record that, you know, we we did something good. We, We decided to put the welfare of the community above corporate profits that were harming that very same 
uh, community because we know a collective shout that our supporters want to know how can we spend our money ethically. And there is now a global movement about ethical spending, right, about avoiding mm. the corporates that are doing the wrong thing. You can't bury the oil spill is a saying I particularly like. Like we, we will find out what you've done. You can try to you hide light it. it on fire though. You can try to bury it. Uh, you know, we had another really good example with Bauer Media, which was one of my favourite victories ever. We got rid of three porn magazines, which two of them had been published in Australia for 80 years. And this was Zoo Magazine, Picture Magazine and People Magazine. And we confronted Bauer Media Group with their own corporate ethics. And they agreed seven weeks to get rid of Picture and People Magazine. Like I couldn't believe it. I get a call from the CEO. I thought it was a prank call. You know, I could, I just couldn't believe it. And he said, I want to have a meeting with you. And I went and met with him and he said, everything you're saying is true. We shouldn't be publishing these magazines, which are so degrading and debasing and sexist. Uh, we shouldn't be publishing them. He said, I've just let the German owners know that we're not going to publish them anymore. He said, just give me a month because I need to, uh, you know, let them know and and re-employ the staff in, in other parts of the company. So it just show what is possible. You just, look, I'll tell you, a big advantage to us has been social the advent of social media. It's just, it's just made our campaigning so easy. You know, we plaster their faces of the, the, the corporates, the board, the CEOs with, side by side with the, the images from the magazines or the sex abuse dolls. We just yeah. put their faces out there, we mm. put their names out there, and we make them own it. Now, going back Same to does. your original question, yes, money is a big motivator for them, and it, it's sad that we have to work on the hip pocket nerve uh, and that they can't see you know, we have a duty of care here. We have, uh, we should all be working to make the world a better place, right? I know it might sound a bit cliche, but, but you know, what else are we here for? Let's try and make things better than they are. And we will, we will continue to hold these companies to account when they don't do the right thing. And we will name them. We will go out after them publicly. We have thousands of people involved now who want to spend ethically. Every year we have a cross them off your Christmas list list of repeat corporate offenders and all of our thousands of supporters know not to shop there, right? So hopefully mm-hmm. eventually that will get cut through and more companies will decide to come on board. I've spoken about the negative. I want to say something positive here. We also have a CSR pledge for companies that want to do the right thing and that's growing. More companies have come on board and signed a statement of intention not to objectify women and sexualize girls to sell products and services. And more companies are recognizing it's good for them to sign this pledge. And we let our thousands and thousands of people know this, these are good companies. You can spend there and we promote them. We let everyone know about them. And so we're hoping that that will, you know, cause a bit of a tipping point and put more companies on the good side of the ledger and use mm. the good companies to shame the bad ones and hopefully more of them will, will cross over mm. to the to the light to the to the good side is there any good porn can porn be consumed ever at all ethically i had a couple friends of the show on who are male and female who are both only fans models they have their own content they control what they do they're making the money they they they've got complete autonomy over their body is 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 porn in every instance bad or is 
is there such a thing as ethical porn? How many men do you reckon are sitting around right now putting putting the phrase ethical porn into a search engine? And I've checked out some of this ethical porn and I tell you what, it looks pretty much like the other stuff. So you would say no. One of the biggest ethical porn producers, uh, her ethical porn features mother-daughter lesbian fantasies being acted out. You know, call me uh, call me extreme, but I, I don't see that as exactly ethical. So we've got to drill down. Well, what, what, how are you defining ethics here? In regard to OnlyFans, you know, your people you had on, you know, maybe they're making lots of money. So what? So what? That's a very individualistic model of, of ethical behaviour. We know so many young girls, uh, particularly at these current times in the world, are suffering, you know, economic harms. Uh, women who are vulnerable, girls. This is just a glorified pimp-led pyramid scheme, basically. It's just another branch of the global sex industry which doesn't offer women anything better Um, and very few actually get rich. You know, we see this huge PR campaign for OnlyFans. I believe it's paid advertising. You know, prove me wrong. But the stories are all the same. You know, mum of three makes millions doing blah, blah on, on OnlyFans. You know, the... It's like the same person writing the same content and appears, you know, in the same week all over the country, including, for God's sake, on Kids Spot. But the average income for a performer on OnlyFans is about $180 a month. More women are saying that they were stalked, they were pressured into engaging acts they didn't want to for payment. This is a competitive space now. And so you have to do more um, depraved, more degraded content to get the same amount of subscribers. So, This is an industry, again, taking advantage of economic vulnerability, forcing them to do more demeaning acts, and more women are talking about getting burnt out. They're talking about being discarded. They're talking about being stalked. They're talking about how their images were stolen and uploaded to porn sites. Now, I know very young girls that are on OnlyFans, and they're not thinking ahead. They're not thinking, well, where could my images end up? Where where could my content end up and so yeah it's just it's just another iteration of the same sex industry exploitation uh, at great risk and you know you give me a handful of examples of people who claim differently you know I'm more interested in the the broader exploitation of women and girls for for profit where their images end up the harm that's done to them when their images get get leaked and shared all over the the internet and what it means for them when, again, you are telling them that your, your only economic value is the acts that you can perform for men who will pay for you. We, we, why can't we offer them something else? We know women are more vulnerable now as a result of the COVID pandemic uh, and, and, and this industry just steps in to, uh, to turn them into, uh, into profit. A recurring idea that I have heard throughout our entire conversation, and maybe I'm connecting dots that that maybe aren't there, but it sounds like the thing that you describe, whether it be this massive industry or we talk specifically about OnlyFans, is is almost a subtext challenge to the overt narrative that consumer capital tells us. It says, you are control of your purchases. You, whatever you decide to buy, your moral agency is, is in that. But then you paint a picture where, for example, in this OnlyFans <clears throat> example, you're saying 
when you're part of this platform, there will be incentive structures set up in such a way that eventually the moral agency that you might have might eventually be eroded. Maybe you need more money. Maybe you're being programmed to think that more sex acts are okay. You're putting a price on everything. So one day you might desperately need to make that car payment and you'll go, you know what? I'll do it just this once. It'll be a decent amount of money. So it, it sounds like the thing you're, you're challenging or putting out there is the story that we always have complete moral agency in the face of things like behemoth incentive structures designed for profit and also the impact culture has on us to then shift what our moral agency was. And then I suppose you end, up, end, you end at the point where I think a lot of people would agree and that's saying that, and this has measurable harms and outcomes, particularly for young women for t- uh, and particularly for young boys. And ultimately, it ends with domestic violence and potentially even worse things. Yeah, there's definitely a flow-on effect and we're, you know, we're all harmed. To give you another example, Belle Delphine, who we've uh, written about, uh, Jen Isaacson wrote a brilliant piece dissecting and critiquing Belle Delphine, who started out on Instagram, got booted off Instagram because her content uh, was too pedophilic and uh, then moved to OnlyFans and Pornhub. And she's become a global sensation. Why? Because she looks and acts and dresses like a child, right? Now, you can't just say this is an individualistic thing and she's chosen to do that and anything's okay Mm -hmm. in a capitalist economy. That pedophilic aesthetic, which normalises the sexual use of children is going to harm, is is harmful to society as a whole. And we have to ask ourselves why is that, that pedophilic genre, that pedophilic aesthetic that she has played to, why is that so popular? Why is she the most popular woman on OnlyFans? Why? Right? That, that's going to harm us all. You can't just segment that and say, well, that's just her doing her own thing and making lots of money from it, you know. It doesn't work like that. We're, we're all in, interconnected. We're all bound by certain certain bonds. And mm-hmm. what, what she's doing will have a, has a ripple effect and it affects every, every child. I mean, there are people now arguing that children are sexual beings and that, uh, it's discrimination against a minority group, primarily pedophiles, who want rela- relationships with children. This is being put forward now by mm. this, you know, as a as a persecuted minority group who we stop from having relationships with children who naturally want and desire those relationships. So what someone like Belfine does is contribute to that to that idea, normalizes that idea. Uh, as does so many other examples of the adultification of, of children throughout media and, and, and popular culture. Hmm. I, I think it's a potent example that you use because it shows that we as a society do draw lines around what can and cannot be commodified and sold. I'd say 100% of people listening would go, yeah, we, we should definitely draw the line at 
pedophilic child abuse depictions and all of these types of things this shouldn't be sold i don't care which i don't care which company's making profit they shouldn't be able you, sh you shouldn't be able to make profit by exploiting children they're like, being sold on instagram right now right now they're being sold on instagram we can all agree that these things we should draw those lines around and then yeah like you're saying on instagram and social media the profit motive exists so it's it's popping up anyway but then you're challenging or it sounds like you're challenging where pointing out we have drawn a line at least legislatively around certain things and you're pushing to have that line continue to be drawn and challenge i suppose the very nature of what is allowed to be sold what is acceptable commodification of something how much damage to society needs to be done before we actually draw these lines melinda thanks so much for taking so much time to talk to me is there anything you want to add or sum up with or get on the record uh it's been a very interesting conversation conrad thank you and it's very rare to have the opportunity to explore these things at length and in, in detail. You know, usually I'm doing sound bites, so that's been an interesting process yeah. for me. Uh, look, anyone that's interested in our work, naturally, we'd love you to, to check us out at collectiveshout.org is our website. We're across all of the socials, of course, and my website, melindatankardreese.com, and I'm across all the socials uh, as well. And we'd love to keep the conversation going. Uh, please be in touch with us and... Uh, and just thanks again, Conrad, for this opportunity. No worries. It's been an absolute pleasure. Thanks for coming on and sharing and, and being open and honest about the work you do because it, it does sound, and that was the general gist from the top, that the work you're in is a challenging space to be in and it, it especially sounds like you cop a lot of abuse, especially being in the online space, that maybe people would be probably potentially unaware of is that is that do you find yourself stepping into shots being fired because of the work that you do because a lot of people listening they could agree and go yeah you're pointing to some very real harms here you're going yep these are measurably damages we're all we, we all agree that it's bad but so then why why the hate yeah i know like right who could like you know What's not to love? Uh, why, <laughs> why the hate? Well, I would say that, you know, I love to quote the former Australian Labor Prime Minister, Paul Keating, who used to say, the dogs may bark, but the caravan rolls on. So the caravan's rolling through town. The dogs are barking around the tyres and yipping, making a fuss, but the, the caravan just keeps rolling on, you know. And I suppose I've always, uh, even though I'm not wanting to play down how difficult the abuse uh, has been, uh, you know, that's a, that's a whole story in itself. But, you know, I believe that if, if, if you're achieving, if you're fighting these global mega powerful industries, you're, you're going to get abuse. Like why would they bother if you weren't getting somewhere, if they didn't feel the threat of that? The threat to their profit, the threat to their sense of entitlement, men, men's sense of entitlement uh, to this content to do what they want. Uh, obviously, you're going to get um, pushback, and I think that what we're doing is important. I think it's worthwhile. I have the privilege of working with amazing people. It may sound surprising, but we actually have a lot of fun. Uh, we love working together. I've met some of the best people ever in the world. You know, I've got to travel around the world, speak, write, 
engage in an issue I care about that I that I love and uh, there's there's a lot of value in that and when young people write to you and say you know your message has changed my life like that means more to me than all the abuse that I've copped from from online trolls for the last decade you know because I see what's important and meaningful and what we're fighting for you know so that helps me to keep going and of course all of the supporters that have our backs, you know, it just, it just all counts and helps us to keep um, doing this work. Mm-hmm. Melinda, thanks so much. Um, you've, I'll link your contacts in the, in the show notes. But if you're listening to this and you're thinking, I disagree with that entirely. I think she hates men. I'm, I'm really angry and riled up. But you've made it to the end of this episode. Congratulations. Send me a DM. And I will reward you with the highly coveted golden emoji medal. You can spend it anywhere where they accept them. Uh, you have participated in the Ideas Digest practice, listening to ideas that maybe you're just not interested in or you've never thought of before. Or maybe ideas actually trigger you and you're going, I'm really disagreeing with this. If you can listen and understand, hopefully I've been able to give you some insight on where Melinda's coming from, the work she's doing and why she does it. Thanks for tuning in and I will catch you all in the next episode.